listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. I'm really excited to have Dave Padnayak with us. Dave is a CEO and founder of Jump Associates, which is the world's largest independent strategy and innovation firm. Jump works with like some of the world's most admired companies like Target, Universal Music Group, Google, Nike, to solve their most difficult growth challenges. Dave is a two-time published author, Dave. Is that right? That is right. Wired to Care, great book if you haven't read it, and Need Finding, which is a textbook, which I have to admit I have not read. And he's also an adjunct professor at Stanford University. So Dave, welcome to Rattle and Pedal. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. I've I've been listening to you all for, for several years now, and it's it's Cool to meet you all in person and see your faces. Do you have masochists on your LinkedIn profile? I would, that's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So I didn't even need to introduce the topic. I, I introduced the person, but not the topic. So today, what I want to talk about is breaking through growth ceilings. Because I think like Jump is in its year, it's what, 24th year, 23rd year? This is going to be our 25th anniversary on June 19th. We'll have been in business for 25 years. And you've been through multiple probably growth blocks at moments in time. What I want you to do is just sort of like take us through that journey a little bit, if if you don't mind. I'd like you to go back in time a little bit and talk about the founding of the firm. We've known each other for about two years, and I know you've made a ton of change in the last 24 months. Um, and a lot of that change has been really successful, but I also there was a lot of stuff that led to that. So I'd just love to hear kind of like the backstory the founding story of Jump, how you, you started this firm in the first place, what drove you to, to do it? And, and then what, talk about some of the early years and then talk about when you hit some some growth ceilings before the one you hit in the last 24 months and that which you've broken through, you know, and prior growth ceilings that you might have hit along the way. So let's just jump in. Let me stop talking. I want to hear you talk about the, the backstory of Jump. Sure. So Jump has been around for 25 years now, which means that you know, I started it with with my co-founders. There was five of us who started it back when we were kids. We started when we were, you know, 27 years old, right? And I think at the time, my idea of entrepreneurship is you start something when you have this brilliant idea and dun, 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 and I'm going to go change the world. And that wasn't the case at all for us. It was almost a very kind of negative reaction, sort of like we looked around there was no place we wanted to work. And we said, well, heck, then I guess we have to go create our own thing. You know, you kind of feel like, the you know, you've run out of options. So you better start something. And the reason for that was that we had backgrounds in business strategy and design and social science. You know, we were kind of these interesting hybrid folks. And when we looked around the world, there were the kind of like the big, you know, legacy strategy consultants who were doing their thing. And that was really interesting. They were solving really important problems, but they tended to be solving them in relatively uninteresting ways. And then we saw these really interesting design firms, right, that were out there that were doing really cool and interesting things on relatively minor issues, right? And we said, there's got to be something that's in between. How do we take the level of rigor and strategic thinking that a large consulting firm does, as well as combine it with the, the level of intuition? and creativity that a designer and innovation firm does. And we want both of those and, and we can't find a place that does that. So heck, we'll have to start our own thing. How did you come up with the name? 
you want to say that you have this really, you know, innovative process and, and you start with that. We sat down and said, well, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to call this thing? My, my, you know, there's five of us who started. And I remember we all got together on 4th of July weekend, 1998, right, to kind of plan out what would we do and what would this organization be like? And we said, we should come up with a name. I said, okay, well, we, let's have some brainstorming session. Let's come up with some some ideas. And honestly, the, the first name out of like my head was like, well, let's call it Jump. That, that seems like a cool name for something like this because we're all about kind of like jumping ahead and not just doing the incremental next thing. But we're like, no, 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 no. You, you can't go with your first idea. You got to go. And so we brainstormed. You, know, like, you need some pain. Exactly. We went to like 500 or 800 ideas. And by the end of it, we're like, yeah, let's go with the first one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly not what you want to do, right? But it, it just felt really right. But I do remember um, one of my partners, my co-founders, a guy named Bob Becker was working at uh, GE at the time, right? And one of the tests for this was he gave his notice to his boss. He said, hey, I'm quitting GE. And he said, oh my God, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to go work for a consulting firm that does strategy and innovation. And he said, who is that? And he said, oh, it's called Jump. And his boss said, oh, I think I've heard of those guys. <laughs> that, that's a great name. <laughs> that's, exactly, that's a sign that you've got a good name. It reminds me of years ago, Dave, I did some work for well, Ashton Oil Company that at the time owned Valvoline, and we did this study about they wanted to enter a new market and we were trying to test brand awareness. And the market, there was like 25% of the market thought Valvoline already had a product that didn't exist. Uh -huh. And so we're like, well, I think you might want to name it, use the Valvoline brand name here because that looks like it's exactly. going to work. Exactly. You know, we've been doing this innovation work for a long time. And, and I think one of the misapprehensions that people have is that when you come up with something great, that the best ideas are ones where you're like, wow, that's amazing. That's so strange. That's so different. The best idea is the one where you look at and go, doesn't that already exist? And then you look yeah. around and you're like, well, son of a gun. No, it doesn't. <laughs> that's a great idea. That's a great yeah. idea. At that time, all the good names were taking because that would have been the conventional name at that time would have been consulting.com. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Right? It's, it's the well, why didn't you call it consulting.com? It was the, the height of the dot-com era. Yeah, you I know, actually thought I thought your story on the name was going to be like the Steve Jobs story, where like I had to, we had needed something to put on the bake loan. <laughs> yeah, in the right. car. Said, wow. no, we, we were very deliberate about it. We did every. You know, you have to, for us at that time, we were deeply influenced by the book Built to Last, right? Yeah. And my dad had worked at IBM, and I was highly influenced by the idea of building a great company that lasts for the ages and does more than just make money, but has real impact in the world and is, you know, like t takes care of its employees and does right by its clients. And so, you know, here we are starting a company in Silicon Valley and we're around all of these kind of like dot-com startups. And, and I think we wanted to start something that looked more like the entrepreneurship of, you know, a Procter & Gamble or a Nike or, or an Apple even, but not pets.com. Yeah. Hold that thought about you know, big impact, because I think that ties to your purpose. And I want to come back to that later. But first, I want to actually go back in time a little bit. So you hang this shingle, right? Okay. So, hey, we're Jump Associates with this strategy and innovation firm. What do you sell it at that point in time? What do, what do the services look like? Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's really interesting. The, we were in many ways making the connection and the jump in between the kind of large corporate strategy work 
right? And the, you know, like, okay, so we have designers out there and telling them, you know, like, like what's, what's the question you're asking them, you know, to, to come up with? I think like many people around the same time, and this is kind of the late 90s, we had the realization that strategy could provide a context for design and design could inform business strategy, right? And that there was a space in between, right? We were not the only ones to do it. And I think that luckily enough for us, our timing was good. Like at that very moment, we had the rise of a completely new job title, which was the chief innovation officer. And those things hadn't existed before. And so we kind of got lucky that right at the moment we were starting, there was this new chief innovation officer role. And you have to go back in time and remember that we had something called Sarbanes-Oxley, where regulators in Wall Street told CEOs that we don't want you to be going out and looking at the future. We want you to keep an eye on the business. In fact, sign your name to the numbers that you're looking at the today problem. And so many CEOs who had historically, part of their job was to look for the future, you know, were now dragged to the present, right? And so came the rise of, of, of either a chief innovation officer or a forward-looking chief strategy officer, that their job was now to go out and, and look beyond the now and see what they're not doing today that they should be doing next. So how did you get clients in the early days? And, and, and when did you hit your first growth ceiling? I'm just, I would like to hear that. You know, a lot of it was, was literally just knocking on doors and saying like, hi, can we come and talk to you? And we, we, we'd like to show you what we do. And we think that what we're doing is different, right? It was, it was not unlike a lot of what a lot of firms do when they're getting started. We went to conferences and we handed out business cards and we just stood there, right? Most of us have been in that situation where, um, and I got very used to it in my early days of, you you know, you go to a conference and then they break for a half an hour for some reason in the middle of the day. And so you have 30 minutes and somewhere in this ballroom are the two people that you want to talk to that, you know, maybe will help you to build your business and you, and you want to connect with them. And instead, you're spending time talking to somebody who isn't going to help you at all, right? <laughs> and you're trying to be polite to them. And then you have the grim realization that when you actually talk to that person that you want to talk to, they're going to view you as their waste of time because they're trying to talk to somebody else. <laughs> well, what a horrible, horrible thing that was. But you learn and you go through that and you learn how to be brave and not take no for an answer. But the other thing is you learn compassion, right? And you learn like, you know, okay, let me reframe this, that no matter who I'm going to speak with, you know, they have something interesting to share. And I'm going to stop trying to do the like 30 minutes, how do I get to the big dog in the room and instead try and make, you know, real connections. I mean, that you're talking about to a kid in his late 20s, that that was a, a lot of growth to go through. Well, especially if you're, if you're coming out of Silicon Valley, right? Like listening skills are not the things you think of at that time in the late 90s. Yes, <laughs> exactly. It so. really is a gift that you learned it in your 20s. There are a lot of 50-year-olds that still don't know that. Yeah, you know, running this company or, or growing this company over the last 25 years has, you know, it's it's not been easy. You, you know, we've lived through what, you know, the dot com crash, a giant professional services contraction, the Great Recession, the two other downturns. Oh, by the way, the pandemic, right? I look back at those folks who were, you know, running companies in the 50s and the 60s, right, where they had a few decades of uninterrupted growth. And you see pictures of both like, right. no, you know, no wonder they had a liquor cart in their office. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
It was just, a, you know, they had a much easier time of it than we do, you know. When they- Party all the time, right? Yeah. All right. You write the book, Wired to Care. But when, when was that? 08? Came out in 2009. That's right. 2009. Okay. Yeah. So talk about that. That that was a big catalyst of growth for a while, right? It was. Because, you know, Wired to Care came out of an insight that I had, which was that when we looked at companies in the world, the, the ones... The clients that we worked with that were really able to do great things had an intuition for the people beyond their walls and, and not just relying on market research. You know, like we, we were working with Nike and, you know, everyone who was at Nike working on a running shoe was a runner themselves. And so if the market research report sucked, the shoe still ended up being pretty good, right? Because they had an intuition for what that was about. That was very different from, say, a company like, you know, Reebok, which was a bunch of consumer packaged goods marketers who happened to be in shoes. Right, and we said, okay, there, there is something here, and and so I, you know, my my co-writer Pete Mortensen and I wrote Wired to Care to to talk about this notion of empathy and how empathy can fuel innovation, which at the time it sounded kind of nuts, right? And now I think empathy, you know, there are more people talking about empathy in business, but at the time we were kind of on the on the bleeding edge of that idea. I'm going to put you on the spot because you said this to me once when I was talking to you and you, when we talk, you talk about ethnographic research, obviously, as a lot of, of, of the backbone of empathy. And there's so many great passages in that book. But you were saying to me once, like, you know, sometimes CEOs have a hard time because they say, well, Dave, I'm not going to base my strategy on conversations with eight people. You know? That's right. And so how do you overcome that out of, just out of curiosity? Like, how do you, you know, balance that notion of like, you know, this feeling that, you know, it's a qualitative exercise with a handful of people or... Or maybe I'm, I'm mislabeling it. Well, no, that I and mean, that's exactly right. You know, that kind of firsthand experience out in the world, or interviewing people, or just kind of hanging out in a seat, will give you great intuition for a market. But it's not a replacement for data either, right? And you, yeah. And, and I think we, as a business community, we we kind of overcorrected in the other direction, where we went super data heavy, right? We were in the age of big data, you know, for almost a decade there. And the question is, well, should you have data or should you have intuition? You you need both, right? Yeah. And it is a, do I like my right leg or my left? Could I could I have them both, please? Do I have to lose one? Right. Um, and there's no better example of this. You know, take the 2016 election, right? Separate out whether you you were happy that Trump won or you know disappointed that Trump won. The the thing you want to hold on to is no one thought Trump was going to win, right? Not even Donald Trump. The look of surprise on his face because all the data said you weren't going to, you know, that yeah. this was going to happen. I remember though that summer we were doing some work with Target, and we've worked with Target now for twenty years. And we had a, a group of folks who were out studying folks, particularly in the South. And 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 I remember my you know my project lead came back, and they had been in people's homes in Chattanooga. And came back, you know, from what they were learning. We were trying to learn about attitudes and mindsets there so we can develop a long-term strategy. And I said, how'd it go? How was Chattanooga? And my project lead looked at me and he said, you know what? Trump's going to win. I said, that is nuts. That is not. Are you crazy? Look at the data. He's like, I don't care. Trump's going to win. He's like, I've been inside people's houses. And when you look at the level of discontent, right? And they're not seeing it expressly, and they certainly won't see it in a phone survey. But I'm telling you, if you spend time with these mm-hmm. people, there's something going on, right? Now, you need data and you need intuition at the same time. And, and I think that the biggest thing we brought to the party was to say that empathy mattered in a world that had come to believe that it was all about Excel charts and PowerPoints. And yeah. you know, vibe still counts. 
It's funny. When does Excel hit the market? Ninety-five? Is that is that when it's like it's like you know the spreadsheet? That was probably a little bit earlier than that, yeah, right? Like, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, late eighties, I would say something like. But I'm just that. thinking, I mean, it's like if you're like eighties and nineties, to your point, like data, like you know, it's like Excel is this magical new thing, right? So for twenty years, everyone's oh my god, you know it's. <laughs> Well, my, my my dad was a middle manager at IBM, right? And and when he was, you know, working in the seventies and the eighties, right, cutting edge was knowing your numbers, right? And actually like, no, I can tell you what our numbers look like in Peoria last week. Now knowing your numbers is table stakes. It's like what do you what yeah. are you gonna do with that? <laughs> and that's, uh, that's what surreal. does it mean? Yeah. yeah. So wired to care drives a lot of growth, right? So you, you get a lot of growth off of the, the publishing that book and the and the marketing things you did around it. Talk to us a little bit about that, because then you run into another growth ceiling, you know, within the last, you know, 10 years. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think a couple of things happened, which was that the role of the chief innovation officer changed, right? It used to be about adding new revenue or creating new businesses, which was what we were all excited about. And over the last 10 years, it became much more about kind of like running internal surveys and, you know, what they're calling like idea jams, like every every so it was just kind of like a very sophisticated online suggestion box. I know we get all these ideas, (laughs) right? And and then these, you know, many of these chief innovation officers stopped measuring their success in terms of how much revenue they're bringing, or in terms of the strategic challenges that they are solving, and it became much more of you know things like employee engagement, right? Like like this was just a way to keep people happy inside the company, right? Right. And motivate people. And around the time that that happened, we just you know we had increasingly less useful things to say to those folks, right? Because the big problem still existed out there, right? There's still, you know, I remember I was talking to a fellow, the chief innovation officer of a very large uh, life insurance company. We're talking about 10, 15 years ago at this point. And he was telling me all of the things he's doing, we're doing these innovation jams and we bring together people and we have like, you know, 300 ideas on the wall. And I'm listening to him like, yeah, that's really great. But, you know, I got to tell you, you and everybody else in the insurance industry are staring down 10 years of a low interest bond market that is going to make it impossible for you to make good on your policies. And that's what Japan went through, you know, just a few years ago. You will see just the kind of like unraveling of your business. So unless one of your 300 ideas solves that, I don't care. <laughs> and he smiled at me, and that, which is not the answer I expected. And I was like, why? What's so funny? He said, you know, my chief strategy officer told me the exact same thing yesterday. Like, well, <laughs> if we're both telling it to you, maybe you should listen, right? Which is a funny way of saying I started to get soured on the whole innovation thing. Did the role just move? Did it move to the chief strategy officer? So is that the, the, the no? role moved a little bit to the chief strategy officer. The, the role moved to, you know, much more of a psychographic profile of somebody who is out there, who is kind of just relentlessly future focused and kind of looking for what's going on next. Sometimes they are what we would call a C-level Navy SEAL, right? Which is there is often someone who reports to the CEO and maybe their title is chief marketing officer. Maybe they are you know, chief people officer. Maybe they're the head of strategy. Maybe they're just chief of staff. And their job is whenever something is completely vague and ambiguous out there, but needs to be solved, the CEO goes, I don't have to them to deal with, go solve that. And that person runs off and figures it out. And what they're really good at is learning things. You're like, oh my God, sustainability is a really big thing. I don't know if we have anything to do with sustainability. Go figure that out. Off they go. Uh, George Floyd happens. And so like, oh my goodness, where are we on diversity and inclusion? Are we doing any, could you just go handle that? Right. And so- 
often that person is, you know, kind of like parachutes into whatever is the big weird challenge that's there. And they got to figure something out and they got to go solve that problem. That is in many ways our ideal client. So there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff I want to talk about that we haven't got to yet. But before we get there, were you happy with Wired to Care? Were you happy with the book and the result that it, no. it drew? <laughs> Not at all. Like looking back on it now, I am, you know, very happy with it. It's a, it's a well-written book with a good thesis and the storytelling is good in it. At the time when it launched in 2009, that was one of the worst years of my life, right? <sighs> and I think it, it was because I had so tied to kind of like an off-the-shelf definition of success and achievement. Just for, for those of you who, who are unfamiliar with, with the book industry, 90% of the business books in the world sell fewer than 5,000 copies, right? And we sold, I think like 12,000 copies or something in the, in, the, in the first nine months. So it was really good. I mean, like as, as far as a business book goes. And I was completely depressed because I wanted to be Malcolm Gladwell. I wanted to sell 100,000 copies. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is just terrible. To the point where someone would, you know, send me a kind note and say, I really loved your book. It had a meaningful impact on what I do. And I thought, well, that guy's an idiot because it only sold 12,000 copies. Something's wrong, right? It's the sign of that the basic way that I'm viewing the world is messed up. Oh, the irony. (laughs) 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 What about the economic impact of it for the fur? The book still has long tails. I know this from talking to you. Stunningly so, yeah, people still read Wired to Care. I, I, I'm shocked at that. You know, we are like a 50-person company, right? And when you are a consulting firm of the scale that we are, right, the psychology of the principles matters tremendously. And my psychology was just not in a good place. Somewhere yes. after Wired to Care, the next year or two, I really hit the wall, right? We're like, I hated my life. I hated my job. I didn't want to do this anymore. I, you know, I had this moment in time where I looked around at this point. I am working with some of the most admired CEOs in America. And I thought, I work with a bunch of assholes. They're all jerks. <laughs> and thankfully, thankfully, somewhere in the midst of that, I also had the thought, well, they can't all be jerks. And so if I'm perceiving them all to be jerks, the only common denominator is me. And so I need to rewire something with myself. And so therein started, you know, the, the kind of the rewiring of Dave Pitnayak and and then hopefully like the the, the next phase of, of jump as well. So let's talk about that. The last 24 months have been a, a whirlwind for you. I mean, you have pulled every lever at the same time. I mean, roughly speaking. Talk about that. Talk about the last one for a month. What, what levers are you are, are are you seeing? Like like what 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 comes up for you in this? Oh, well, there's like six. There's the purpose. So right. so you really you, you dove into the purpose of the organization. You built a whole new point of view that that is really powerful. You rethought the service model based on that point of view. You've reinvented the selling process. You've reinvigorated marketing. You've changed I mean, service delivery. I mean, you you know you've spent a lot of time with me about this. So like you've moved a lot of things in a very short amount of time. I have to be honest with you, the, the things that you're saying, the, the levers that I pulled in the last two years are not two years in the making, right? There are things starting from 10, 12 years ago, right? Yeah. That are only now coming to fruition, right? In the same way that for me, I hit the wall back in 2010, 2011, right? 
so that by the time I, I come to COVID in, in 2020, right, I'm in a much better place and I'm much more positioned to, to pull the levers, you know, th- that you're talking about. Yeah. Like, for instance, like, I need to figure out why am I in this? What is our greater? And so sometime, you know, a decade ago, we realized that, you know, Jump's greater purpose is to transform lives through learning and growth. That's really why we exist. We work with companies that are really great at doing things, Target, FedEx, Nike, you name it. These are these are great executors, but they're not always great at learning new things. And when that happens, you know, if if they're lucky, they have a visionary leader who knows how to stop and reach for, you know, a, a phone and ask for help. Right? And that's what we do is we actually help them to do something to to learn new things. So, over the last 10 years, the biggest thing we've done is to rewire jump to be much more about that. You know, I should say that in, in the narrow niche of professional services that we do in this kind of strategy and innovation consulting, right? Because a whole subsector grew up around us in, in the last 25 years. Every single one of our competitors has gone out of business or been acquired, right? Not many of them, all of them have been acquired, <laughs> which raises the question of like, what's wrong with us? Are we stupid for not selling out, right? And then not surprisingly, you can imagine a lot of the mainline consulting firms and technology service companies, then they're knocking on our door just, you know, because you're the last man standing to, to hire or, or to acquire us, right? And we have no explicit need to sell, but, you know, we're happy to talk to people. Maybe we'll learn something from it because I'm all about learning. And in those conversations, you know, we, we will explain to them that, you know, Jump has much more in common with Starbucks or REI or Patagonia than we do with McKinsey or Bain or BCG, right? That And the difference is that idea of purpose, that we actually believe that we've been put on planet Earth to cause an impact, to cause some change. And it changes how we manage the firm. It changes how we navigated through COVID, right? It changes what we do for our, our clients. And so the real reason why we would sell is more because we could find in a partner that would actually allow us to have greater impact. And we haven't oh, no. found them yet. Interesting. marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. You know, I'm not surprised to hear you describe that that way. In the clients that I deal with, one of the first things we do is uncover the core capability and the value that firms deliver. Right. And the reason we do that is it always gets lost. And it sounds to me like it got lost at jump because I don't know you, but what little I've I've had exposure to you and, and your purpose would indicate that learning and teaching is what you do all along. And I mean, the fact that you're a professor as well, I mean, just reinforces. And I think you're spot on about how important the personality of the founders are at that critical time of the firm. So I'm not surprised to hear that at all. And it's really fun to see you light up when you talk about it. Right. And that's when you go back to and you think about all those CEOs that I had misunderstood to be jerks, right? Because, you know, 
one idea is, oh, they're supposed to be the best among us, right? They're supposed to be wiser and smarter, and that's not true, right? But then there's plenty of people who are like, oh, CEOs are dark, evil sociopaths. And that's not true either. Most of them are pretty bright, very hardworking people who also got lucky in a few critical moments, right? And they are trying very hard to, to, to you know, do right by everybody around them, right? And what gives me great joy working with senior leaders is that being a senior leader in a large you know, company is one of the most emotionally, physically, psychologically, spiritually intense undertakings that you can possibly do. And <laughs> in that moment, all of your insecurities, all of your issues, all of your traumas are going to come to light because it's happening. It's a little bit like, you know, I have a little cut on my foot. It's not a big deal. Yeah, but now you have to run the New York Marathon. Suddenly it matters. And so for most of these folks, that's where it starts to affect things. And if we can work with these folks to learn and to grow as people themselves, the cascading impact on the 100,000 people who, who work for them right, is massive. Right? It's tremendous leverage if we can do it right. And so that therein is a calling where you're, you're not seeing your client as either you know, just a source of revenue, right? or a jerk that you got to put up with, but really as a, as a call to compassion. I love that. And I tell people, you know, when I was going through the career testing, you know, in college or high school before college, that the test said I should be a teacher, a psychologist, or a priest. I got into marketing, became a business leader, and ended up doing all three. I, I mean, I think the best leaders have the two attributes you're talking about, compassion and empathy. Well, actually, you kind of have the ideal leader, compassion, empathy, learning, teaching. And you didn't say it, but I sense it about you and your work would seem to indicate it, curiosity. That's, so it, it's so funny that you say that because I would have said it's all about compassion and, and curiosity. Jump has seven values and one of them, we don't use the word compassion, we use the word intention, right? Having the highest intention for people. One is intention and the other is curiosity, right? And, uh, and how do you nurture that? How do you, how do you engender that in others? So I, I think what's interesting, Dave, when you hear you talk like that, it's almost like you're coming off as like the Uber leadership CEO coach, you know, like where I'm going with this is, is that's, not the, that's not the essence of the business though. So it's like the purpose is to transform lives for learning and growth, but the business is built on solving big thorny strategy problems for clients. That's exactly so right. So it's like well, you I mean, pair these things together and that's so what right. you talk about that. Well, it, I mean, like what we do, it's strategy, culture, and leadership, right? And, and helping on both. But what is strategy done well should be an act of learning, Right. And leadership consulting done well should be an act of growth, right? <laughs> should be helping you to, to, to take on bigger problems, and have a, a, a bigger scale on the world. That is, and both those ideas are, I would say, fairly countercultural in the United States of America in 2023. We live in a time where people don't like to learn. We live in a time where we have leaders who tell you how proud they are about not knowing anything. And on the growth side, we have plenty of folks who have such a fixed mindset. They think there's good people and bad people, people who get it and people who don't, right? As opposed to seeing what people are truly capable of. You know, like my daughter is 15 now. I remember when she was a little kid and we were looking for a first grade to put her in and we we're looking at some private schools in the Bay Area. You know, we'd go to one of these schools and, and you'd hear this as well. We only admit gifted children. 
And my immediate reaction is, well, if you're so goddamn good, make my kid gifted. <laughs> Isn't that the point? So it's in we're the here. midst of a society that thinks like that, that is filled with knowers with a fixed mindset to say that we're going to transform lives through learning and growth and we're going to do it through strategy and innovation. That's a little bit of a left turn. But it's worked. It's worked really well. Last it's one for hard. It, I mean, yeah. and COVID was particularly difficult for us. You know, I, I had black hair before COVID. It's mostly gray now. <laughs> I had hair before COVID. No, you know, exactly. no I didn't. Yeah. I'm curious, what advice would you give your 27-year-old self today? I don't know that I, I wanted to give him advice. You know, like it's been difficult. What you have to go through is you have to, any advice that I could have given that 27-year-old, he wouldn't have been able to understand, right? I've had the privilege of, of really great mentors around me who I can kind of check in with and, you know, along the way. But you you have to go through, you know, those challenges, those kind of trials by fire, right? COVID is a great example of, of that, right? I heard on your podcast, you know, during COVID, like stories about professional service firms where everything was going really well. And I have to tell you, it made me feel really bad listening to you guys <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because our firm was not doing well at all during the, because we helped you figure out a plan for the future. And for about two years there, no one gave a shit about the future, right? They were just yeah. working on the now, right? And it was like, what are we doing wrong? For me, COVID started at a very clear date, right? For most of it, like, you know, like you remember the day where they called the quarantine or whatever, there was, a, you know, like- you know, March 13th, I think, in California is when they, they like put in the, the orders. But it didn't have a very clear ending. It, it's just, are we still in a pandemic? I, you know, it's kind of just dribbling on for a long time. Yeah. For me, COVID had a very clear beginning and a very clear ending, right? And, and I'll tell you why. Because February 29th, I came back from leading a session with an executive team in Costa Rica. And I came back and planes were being canceled. And some of my clients were saying they weren't going to travel. And I said, what the hell is going on? And at 5 p.m. that night, we got on a, a Zoom call with my leadership team. Said we need to figure this out. We're like, are, do we need to stay home? Is there right? And so you're, you're getting into that initial COVID kind of re response. And then very quickly, our revenues plummeted because we had, you know, we had like year-long strategic partnerships with Fortune 500 companies, many of whom said, you know, yeah, May is your last month. So, but we have a contract. Yeah, but you're done. So our revenue, you know, plummeted to a third of what it was in the previous year. And it's at that point that you have to figure out what are you going to do. And we saw, you know, competitors of ours who were laying people off. That's the easy answer. And we looked at that and we said, what, what do we do about this? And there are other times where you can have layoffs and you feel okay because you're like, you know what? They're going to get a job somewhere else. Not in 2020, baby, right? In 2020, if you laid somebody off, they were not getting a job maybe for a while. And maybe they had other people who were depending on them for that income. So even though... Our revenue was cut to a third. You said, we need to figure out a way that does not include layoffs. And I remember doing one-on-one -on -one conversations with all of our VPs and all of our directors and just thinking about what the alternatives were. And I did them individually because I didn't want anybody to feel pressured into this. And what we finally came to was the idea that we were going to put in a salary cap, right? And that we, were putting, we put in a cap of $100,000, which meant that if you made $150,000, now you made $100,000. And if you made 300,000, now you made 100,000. And if you made 90,000, you were fine. Nothing changed because you, there's a basic corpus of, of money that income that you need to live in the Bay Area, right? Yeah. So those people were untouched. 
And we said, we're going to do that, and then we don't have to do any layoffs, right? Now, that's fine in May of 2020, right? When Because you think, how long could this possibly go? Three months, five yeah. months, six months? And it got harder and harder as it went through like a year of that. You're trying to manage through this you know, sort of thing and, and trying to get through it. We had some clients who were great, who stood by us, right? We had, we right. had a couple of clients, you know, I had, I had one CEO was like, I know we're supposed to pay you half at the beginning of this project and half in three months when this thing is over. Just bill us right now, right? Because I know you need the money. We had another client who said like, jump is not going to go down on our watch if we can't help it. They give us projects that I don't even think they needed, you know, done. They were giving <laughs> us, you know, it was like the worst progress administration, you know, <laughs> like, but that was the kind of relationships that they had built you know that 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 we had built that so that we stood by each other you know through all of that but i do remember a point in time in middle of 21 where it was getting worse and worse and i started to hear stories from people like people who said like oh you know interest rates are really low but i can't refinance my house because i only make 100,000 what do i do so i did the same thing i did before i went around and i talked to each of our gps and each of our directors individually and i said look we've done the math and if, if we laid off, right, five or 10 people, we're a 50 person company, if we laid off five or 10 people, we could actually restore salaries. We think we could do that. And what I found was amazing and humbling is that to a last person, they were like, absolutely not. We've come this far. That's not who we are. My head of IT shamed me. I remember he was talking to me. He's, he's, he's a tech guy for us. And he said, Dave, let me get this straight. You're saying that if I fire 10 people, I can have my salary back? I'm like, yeah. He said, that's some cold shit, man. I expected better than that from you. <laughs> then proceeded to go for another five minutes on, on why you know I, I was disappointing him as a CEO. I was like, I'm just asking the question. I just need to check. He's like, yeah, I can't refinance my mortgage right now. But this is what we have to do. So we got through that. 22 was much better. 22 was actually our, has been our best. It was our best year to date. This year is going to be even better. We restored salaries in, in January. But for me, COVID started on February 29th of 2020, and it ended on August 29th of 2022, because that day was a Monday. And that was the day that I sat down one-on-one -on -one with each of my VPs and each of my directors and each of my principals and thanked them for everything they did to hold this company through all of that. And I handed them each a check, paying them back for their cap salary with interest. Oh, wow. wow. That is so cool. I bet you, you got a couple of big smiles. I got a lot of tears, actually. That's and even better. I got better. a lot of people crying. And I got a lot of shocked looks because most companies don't do that. Like uh -huh. I said, <laughs> we're not most companies. Yeah. All right. So we're running up on time here. So, but before we go, you know, you just alluded at it in hey, Lansing. Hey, Jason. Yeah. Jason, you just shifted to to end our podcast when that is we just heard one of that, the best stories i think i've ever heard from a ceo of any firm not just a professional services firm i i, I want to applaud you I, I i love that story dave that is so cool so cool yeah. And I, I just want to say kudos to you. Yeah, that fair point. So fair cool. point. I, I, I didn't acknowledge how powerful that is, both in terms of you as a values-driven leader. Where I was headed was was more that you did some things to make that happen, though. You just sort of skipped past the path. You, you, you glanced at it. You said, hey, uh, it was the best year ever, right? 
but you didn't really give yourself enough credit for all the things you did to make that happen as a leader and as a, and as a team. Yeah. You described the end moment, which is great, but I want you to, just to spend a few minutes with us on, on some of the stuff you did to make that 2022 what it was, to pull the firm out of that, that spiral that you found yourself in. You know, all through that, we, we focused on one thing, relationships, right? And standing by the clients that we had and making sure we were doing right by them, even if they were unable to do right by us at that time, right? That just kind of, number one, just even through every moment of COVID, you know, forget about job, forget it. How am I doing? How are you doing? How are you holding up and, and getting through this? Making sure that, that we showed what we cared about. We doubled down on, on thinking about marketing. We increased our marketing spend during that time, strangely enough. Last year, we launched a completely new website. And part of that included like really sharpening our positioning. Because remember what I told you before, right? Which is like, we're all about transforming lives through learning and growth. And we live in a society that doesn't care about learning. So if we just said jump, we're all about learning, that does not work, right? But actually saying like, no, doing this kind of strategy will help you navigate the future so you don't blow up or get blindsided, right? And actually understanding that when we, when we talked about it as future-focused strategy, right, it became a very clear thing. You say like, no, there's a lot of people who are going to tell you the facts of what a company did last year, and so you should do that too. That's past-focused. That's a rear-view mirror, right? And what you should be doing instead is focusing on, on the future. So we clarified our offering, right? We spent more time thinking about the positioning in a meaningful way. We wrote up our, our best case studies when we came up with specific tools. We took all of the intelligence and social science and strategy planning backgrounds that we had, and we used it to build a new model for how you would predict post-COVID behavior, right? And published that with a Harvard Business Review, right? Again, just to get information out there that would help, right? So I think I am super lucky because I have the, the greatest clients in the world, but I also have the greatest team in the world. And one of the things that they did is they stayed focused through all of that on what actually matters so we could come out of it with success. What I love about what you just shared, Dave, was that you described how you made that moment come to life. Because you can't have that moment if you didn't do those things. Yeah. Because those things enabled that moment to happen. That took an incredible amount of courage and focus to do some of the things that you did in the last couple of years. And, and again, I know you fairly well. There's a lot of stuff you didn't talk about that you also did that made a big difference. We got a PPP loan. That really helped. Well, yeah. Well, of course. <laughs> of course. Turns, turns out, you know, government's the enemy until you really need a friend. Okay. So- Jeff, what other burning questions do you have of Dave before we lose him? I, I love everything that you, you've talked about. It reinforces my own experience. So maybe I have a bias here. But what I hear you saying is, you know who you are as a leader. You know who you are as a firm. You're unapologetically those people out in the market. And to me, that is the foundation of foundations for a successful professional services firm being able to articulate exactly what you do and communicate it through the, the channels, you know, or in a large way, tactical problems compared to getting clear about who you are. Because it is, it is kind of a metaphor for our individual, you know, kind of coming of age and growing up and getting comfortable in our own skin. And that's what I've, right. I've heard you say. But I want to understand, and this is personal for me, so we're going off the the tangent here just a little, but I was so fascinated with the disciplines you bring to your thinking of solving these big client problems. And in particular, 
how you pull anthropology into the equation. Share something about that because I think that would be interesting for people to think out, to use a trite expression, to think outside the box about their solutions and how they serve clients. Right. Well, it's, you know, I think our, our approach since the very beginning has been, you know, what we've always referred to as a hybrid approach, right? That you know, people at Jump need to be kind of one part humanists, one part technologists, and one part capitalists. You know, oh. the, the, the ideal jumpster is somebody who can, you know, study what's going on in the world and discuss Brunerian framing theory and say, here's the underlying subconscious mindset that nobody knows about. Pick up a pen and sketch something hot and then calculate gross mean return on investment in year three, right? And I think that for solving really complicated problems, you can do that with a multidisciplinary team, you know, you bring those people together. But for solving these weird, ambiguous problems, you need multidisciplinary people. You need it all in the same head, right? Yeah, right. To draw those connections, to make those dots. It is, you know, more than anything, our, our biggest limited growth is like finding those people. We live in a world that encourages silos, right? We, we live in a world where, you know, you are much more interesting than you pretend to be at work. Right, you have like ten million things going on, and then you come to work, and you're like, "I'm a marketer," and <laughs> forget all the other things that you have going on in your life. Right? I understand why that worked in an industrial age. It's pretty useless in an information age. I yeah. love that Good. multidisciplinary people, not just a multidisciplinary approach. Team. Yeah, you have to have these. You know, we we look for you know these hybrid thinkers, like that. Yeah. The, Renaissance geez. men and women. I don't know yeah. if I've ever told you this, Dave, and I, I love when you talk about this because I have a very specific story. Jess, you and I met at the Association of Management Consulting Firms 11 years ago now, and we both attended a lot of their programs, spoke at some of their programs. And I don't think you were at this event, but at this one event, I met the the head of marketing for one of the larger firms in the marketplace with a name I promise everyone knows. I remember having a conversation with him in which he said, basically, the people that they've described are unicorns and that's what marketing needs because it's like, I can't imagine a person that can in the morning can crunch a database to understand analytically what's going on. And then in the afternoon, we'll have a creative conversation with our agency about what to do about it. And he couldn't imagine a reality where that person existed inside of his firm. And yet, Jump is a whole business of them. And I remember at the time, I kind of turned my head sideways. He's like, you know me pretty well. Both of you know me pretty well. That kind of stuff, I'm always like, I can prove that wrong, right? <laughs> so it's kind of, I'm hardwired to like prove somebody wrong when they make those kind of declarative statements. I, I laugh only because it's like such a dichotomy, right? Like, you know, that the idea of those people even existing is, is something that many large firms can't even possibly comprehend, um, yet alone building a business or business around it. I mean, this goes back to the idea of you know, transforming lives through learning and growth. It, it's not that you can't, you know, imagine them existing. It's that you have an impoverished belief in your ability to create those people. Mm, I like that even better. Right? That like maybe they don't exist. They can learn. They can grow. They can get there. Right. And especially in professional services, if you aren't developing, you know, people in that way. What are you doing? <laughs> a little bit of resource arbitrage, a little bit of body shopping? I don't know. I, I don't want to take anything away from those business models. That seems wildly uninteresting to me. I do think you nailed it. And and there's there may be a difference between the firm of today and the firm of tomorrow, but you're clearly 
defining the firm of tomorrow. Actually, I want to I want to end on that question, Jeff, because that's a great point. Dave, what do you see for the next run of jump, the next four or five years? Well, I mean, let's look at where we're going to be in the next 70 years. And to come up with that answer, let's zoom out even more. But let's look over the last 300 years, right? If I came to you in 1800 and I said, what is technology? Describe it to me. You'd say it's big things with coal and pistons and steam shooting around. That's what technology is. If I came to you in 1900, I said, what is technology? You'd say it's capacitors and wires. It looks like a Frankenstein's lab, you know, sort of thing. And if I came to you in 2000, you say, what is technology? You say it's uh, apps and it's it's a lot of set theories, like map, you know, basically math, you know, to do kind of machine learning stuff. That's technology. And if I asked you, go back to 1900 and say, yeah, but what about math and machine learning stuff? It's like, math, that's not technology, that's just math. Okay, so what does that tell you? That tells you that in its earliest stages, really bleeding edge technology is so weird that you don't even code it as technology. It's just too weird to even frame it that way. Why does that matter for us? Because I believe that the next 75 years the greatest technology are all going to be about human potential and human collaboration. Too much of our society still expect people to collaborate in the same way that the pharaohs divided tasks you know, to build the pyramids, right? And we're finally breaking through with that. Zoom is just a first prototype of more weird ways for people to collaborate. So the whole point of Jump is to create a working prototype of a different way to come together and work with other people and have thoughts that people didn't think about. And if we do that right, that prototype will last long after I have been retired or kicked out of the building. Map back from that to, therefore, what do we need to do in the next 10 years? We need to get people to really focus on prizing learning and growth in a way where, as you just described, there's people who can't even conceive of people being more than they are today, right? Which gets back to, we have some, some clear marketing messaging to do around that and the need to be future focused and look beyond where you are today, right? And- I know that's hard, right? Most of us cannot see beyond the conditions that we're in today. We can't imagine the world looking really differently. But if we don't do that, all the other big problems in the world, whether you're talking about you know global recessions or Ukraine or climate change or systemic injustice, like you cannot solve them if you don't rewire your brain. And it starts with doing a, doing a nice little project with a company. The next book will be rewired. <laughs> okay. I don't have time to write. I spent too much time talking to people on podcasts. I know. Well, we're waiting on the next book. So, so, so please, so please write the book on future focus strategy and learning and growth and the intersection of the two. That's my ask. So, okay. Uh, in all your free time, thank you so much for joining us. I really, really appreciate you you taking so much of your day and sharing with yourself as a listener and other listeners, <laughs> kind of the, the job journey. And I think it's a pretty remarkable one. And there's just, there's so many levels of learning inside of it for, for everyone involved. So thank you. Thank you. You guys are great. And I, I love listening to this podcast. Jeff, you have a final question, I know, because it's the question you always ask. Dave, if people want to find out more about you and the firm, where can they go? Jumpassociates.com. There you have it. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Yeah.